Hello. <clears throat> and welcome to the Canadian States of America. What? The Green Majority. Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we are out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, Toronto's only independent radio station on the FM dial. Or on one of our much-appreciated radio syndicate partners, community radio stations around the country, or on wherever they're compiling and putting out podcasts digitally. And uh, I'm Stefan. I'm Stefan Hostetter. I'm David Hostetter. And Lauren Latour is out with her parents tonight at an art show when we're recording. So she's not going to be here. But Stefan Hostetter, who is myself, is interviewing Emma McIntosh from the National Observer about a, an article she recently wrote talking about the Canadian oil industry's wishes for the election. Is that right? Policy suggestions? The, yeah, their requests, what they want to see from the provincial parties, or the, the federal parties, sorry. And uh, someone's going to do an election thing. We're going to do environmental news. But first, I'm just going to mention briefly that I had a, I got a lungful, a mouthful of Doug Ford's environmental policies yesterday when I was riding my bicycle and even a block behind a car that I could not see but caught up to and noticed, you could taste the hideousness of the uh, exhaust from this car blocks away. And uh, I realized in that moment that Doug Ford had opened up the opportunity for me to experience this in my life. Because how many was it? Yes, was it last year? Was it the year before? Was it the year before that? I don't know how long has he been in power. Three I don't. Years. Three years. He stopped requiring cars to do emissions tests. And when he did this, I read an article saying that was arguing that, oh, Doug Ford is going to make Ontario the beater capital of the world. And I thought, well, it's no big deal if you just have some beat up cars on the road. I mean, it's just this it's aesthetically in disrepair, but that doesn't matter that much. And then I swallowed the horrendous exhaust and what the, what his policy actually meant was that we get to breathe hideous exhaust. Uh, so thank you, Mr. Ford. But Stefan, the election? Yes. This election that's coming up in about, oh. I guess it'll be 17 days once this airs. All right. Um, uh, is what's on my mind is whether or not we will ever truly get the kind of quote unquote climate election that environmentalists and NGOs have billed as coming for as long as I have been voting. And, you know, there's been progress, surely, as my entry point into this charade has been was the absolute trouncing of Stefan Dion, who ran on taking the taking the environment and climate change seriously, only to lose to Stephen Harper. But as you will hear later in our interview with Emma McIntosh, these issues have been routinely ignored in the debates, and even now, even as forest fires rage across the country on the heels of the latest IPCC report laying bare the incredibly steep mountain that we will have to climb to keep ourselves below 1.5 degrees Celsius, and less than two months away from the next conference of parties, or COP, where countries from across the world will need to prove that they, are, they will actually exceed their stated ambitions. And even despite polling, including an Angus Reid poll from August 23rd that put climate as the most important issue facing us today, 
we are still left wanting for a truly substantive conversation about what it will take for Canada to do its fair share. Now, most of the coverage of the Conservative climate plan has boiled down to at least they have one this time. What they have doesn't mention wind or solar in touts liquefied natural gas as a necessary solution despite the International Energy Agency stating that its use needs to peak by 2030. You know, the Liberals continue to make promises, including a pledged cap on the oil sector emissions, but are also responsible for the massive amounts of government money that has subsidized the industry since they've come to power, including $18 billion just last year. And of course, they bought a pipeline. And the NDP and Greens have put forth ambitious platforms, but barring an absolute shocking turn of fortune, both are likely shooting to have a strong shooting to have strong showings that land them in the land them in the balance of power once more. And if that happens, one will have to hope and hope that the federal NDP are significantly more ambitious than the BC version, who, led by Premier Horgan, have increased subsidies to fossil fuel companies and continued to brutalize those who are fighting to protect the oldest trees we have in this country. And you know, this is not to be entirely hopeless, of course. There are some truly inspiring candidates running, many for the first time, who see the crisis fulsomely and are prepared to tackle it like the crisis it is. These candidates deserve your time and energy, as do those organizing the 100 debates for the, for the environment and, and any, everyone working to bring these conversations to the fore. But ultimately, all these organizations need help, specifically from the media. It's not enough to simply have a plan, nor is it enough to not really begin ramping down emissions until 2030. Now, according to climate scientist Kristen Zickfield, Zickfeld of Simon Fraser University, Canada will spend its carbon budget, meaning the amount of, of carbon proportional to our population that we have left to spend before blowing past two degrees of warming, in the next four to five years at the current rate. And this is the only measuring stick that matters. So let's hold our leaders accountable to it. If we can have costed platforms, we can have climate plans with carbon budgets. We know our limit. Tell us how you will stay under it, then show you work. It's not a complicated formula, but in, defi in defining success and holding our leaders to account, we just might be able to begin to have a real honest conversation about what we should expect from our leaders and ultimately ourselves. And that is the making of a climate election. So in BC, John Horgan, the NDP leader in BC, he hasn't really done very much environmentally. He did the huge dam that everybody was upset about and it cost too much money. Well, he just didn't cancel the dam. Didn't cancel the dam. The liberals started it. He, he's allowed the law. He's been fine with the law, the, the old growth logging. The pipeline through the Wet'suwet'en territory he's down for. I guess he was against Keystone. No, not he was against that one pipeline. A couple of years ago, they had a trade war about wine going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The BC and Alberta had a trade war about wine going on regarding some sort of pipeline. Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is still being built. And so, and so he stopped fighting that. And so he hasn't really done very much. In fact, one wonders if it would have been different with any other premier. And so to what extent does it even make sense, as you just suggested, that political parties have detailed plans? Because it seems as though once they get into power, there's not really that much that they actually are able to get done because the economy 
is controlled by private industry. I mean, the provincial governments have a fair amount of con- of power. Over and and yet he's done, and he hasn't done anything. They have the Clean BC Climate Plan that they did pass that is, you know, more ambitious than most other provinces. You know, like I so think they what, passed a plan. Yes. And, you know, that includes, you know, like if you look at BC's emissions, it has been, it, you know, it has reduced emissions pretty more, much more significantly than other parts of Canada. Yeah, but would a conservative premier have done much different? I don't know. It's obvious what Doug Ford has done in Ontario. Yes. But it just seems as though something like an appointment of citizens' assemblies that Extinction Rebellion is calling for makes more sense than wanting parties to have platforms. Because with a citizens' assembly, you have individuals, not elected officials, just regular people being randomly appointed. Yeah, I, I think that if you're looking and that for... And that lends them a greater, a greater cachet than an elected official who, who already has to make um, ties and, and uh, concessions to industry. Where with the citizens' assemblies, they don't have those risks. Yeah, I, like I, I think that if you're looking for you know the truly deep cuts and transformative changes, you are much more likely to see that in these other types of conversations than through... You're saying that parties need to step up and have better plans. But it doesn't seem to me that like that's a reasonable expectation because these people aren't going to change unless there's unless there's mass unless individuals, people without power force them to come together and force them to change, right? Well, yeah, but I think that's exactly like that's I think what I mean about the fact that like we don't have the luxury of time to wait for the right way to get this enacted we need like the amount of emissions we can reduce immediately are the most important emissions and we should build other structures to allow ourselves to have you know more meaningful difference for example i think we'd get a lot further with something more like proportional representation or some type of electoral form because you'd have a wider group of people of voices being heard in the legislature and that's another way of getting at some better type of democracy that might lead to a stronger actual change because the parties would have more consistent need to have to address a wider percentage of people but like right now given that like in reality if there's a like the the thing about this federal election is that if this federal election it ends up in a majority government it is quite possible that we will blow past our carbon budget before we have another election we could already be past our carbon budget for a two-degree warming, not even 1.5, for two-degree warming. Canada's carbon budget. Canada's carbon budget, yeah. Before we even have one more election. Do we have solid numbers on the budget, on, the carbon budget? I mean, the carbon budgets are all... Difficult to calculate. Canada's carbon budget, the way they calculated it in this study that I sort of referenced, is the global carbon budget done by population mm. and then sort of factored out, right? Mm. And so all of it is a little... you know, a little, All of it is... None of it's perfect. Mm. But like, to me, the fact that we could, this could be the last election before we are already in the, in the red. And that's not really even accounting for the historical emissions that we are clearly responsible for. That's only the, the last bit that we're now dividing up in a more equitable way. So you're just saying that these parties need to, if they don't have carbon, if they're not talking about carbon budget, they're not talking about climate change properly, that's what you're saying. Well, I, I think that has to be the yardstick that that we as the populace and the media use to consider them, yes. Like, it, it should just be like, if I had my way, you would have 
the leaders basically be put to one, basically put in a room and with, they can have all the people they want to work with them and be told you cannot spend more than this amount of emissions over the next 20 years. And you have to be at like, and, that, and that's how emissions you get. What is your plan to get us there? Mm-hmm. And actually have them show their work. That I think would allow for actually a useful conversation versus what we're seeing now, which is like, you know, it, it feels like we have different standards for each one. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that the conservatives just get points for showing up and then, you know, you have these other plans that have differing questions, but like are still being compared to what, right? Like you need you need a yardstick and the yardstick must be how much carbon we can emit. And doesn't, but doesn't that as a yardstick, and perhaps this is something to do with with uh, you know the conservatives being applauded just for showing up, because they're the defenders of the market of the free market status quo, the quote unquote free market status quo, which is inherently unpredictable. And so, if you're relying on market incentives to do your carbon budget, that you can't have a a properly costed carbon budget in the comprehensive way that you're saying is necessary, if you're also trying to uphold the uh, sacredness of the um, of the market. You're not trying to you're not trying to override it, right? Right. Yeah. And again, like even even this version that I am making up and imagining is still would still be very messy. And it, it, you know we're not going to get perfect numbers here. But I think what it would show though is it would sh- like if if you even tried to do the work. It would then be like, okay, so your carbon budget shoots, you know, we make it six years before we overshoot and we don't get to net zero before, until we've used X, Y, Z more. Mm. You know, you could then start having conversations about like, it, I, would, I, think, it, I think it would change the way we're having conversation about it. I think right now we often talk about it, carbon, as if like, it'll just go in the atmosphere and then we'll see what happens. But when you switch your brain to a carbon budget model, I think it changes the goalposts and it's more easy to imagine or to understand just how drastic the changes need to be and how limited or poor the current plans are in comparison to that budget you know like the no one's like the liberal plan is to go carbon neutral by aiming i think for what is it trying to 2040 or something and hopefully earlier or 2050 and then hopefully earlier or something like that maybe it's 2040 but either way that's tw- 18 years from now. Yeah, because it, I mean, it doesn't seem like there are any non-radical solutions to having a properly costed carbon budget at this point. Any party that would do that, as you're suggesting, would appear radical. I think you could do it in a way that sort of that that sort of takes it the, takes hold of the opportunities. You know, the, the idea of a green core, the idea of uh, of hiring millions of people to sort of retrofit things, the idea of creating whole new industries to you know tackle other emissions the idea of putting people into into natural work or you know there's a whole bunch of stuff where like it could be a positive transformation rather than a okay we're banning cars tomorrow Mm -hmm. right like it doesn't it yes it'd be radical but i don't think that but radical i think in people's minds often means like okay you're gonna ban all these things i like Whereas I think so much of the work could be, no, we're just going to really tackle this in a, in a way that opens up possibility. Yeah, and that's nice. But the problem is when we use language like we're going to tackle this in a, in a good way that opens up possibility, it's so vague that it's like, 
it's hard to understand. But yeah, but that's that's where the actual policies come in, right? Like when you look at places like the Farmers Union, they have a pretty robust plan to explain how farming could get carbon neutral within the next 10 years or maybe even carbon negative depending on how well he takes care of soils right you can look to any number of transportation groups that would talk about how you could massively improve cycling infrastructure across the country or you know or transit right and and does all this rely on it becoming economically beneficial to reduce carbon it doesn't have to right like you could just invest the money Right. Like, it, you know, and and they have other benefits. Right. Like it's been t- shown time, time again that especially investing in transit and in and biking infrastructure and stuff like that is a it's a health benefit for people. It is a it, it reduces reduces health costs on, on the country. It is a, it makes people happier. You know, there's all these examples of ways that life can be better. And it costs it's upfront cost. The concern I think what we're dealing with right now is that people don't want to spend the upfront cost to to really tackle this in some way in some of the biggest ways and so we get this sort of like maybe we can do these half measures which you know would have been fine for 1990 but we're not there So now we're going to do some climate news. Well over 50,000 people fled their homes in South Lake Tahoe, California this week, as the massive Caldor fire continues to stretch northeast amidst incredibly dry conditions. Tamara Wallace, a, the mayor of South Lake Tahoe, told CNN, quote, There was a huge amount of granite between the fire and us, and I woke up on Sunday and it had jumped that granite and now it is in the lake tahoe basin and homes are threatened and our community is threatened and i never thought that was possible a new report from climate central examines the increasing number of fire weather days reading quote climate change is worsening wildfires fire weather conditions are causing problems even where fires aren't burning when fire weather is in the forecast utilities may shut off power to prevent equipment related ignitions Smoke from the many wildfires harms people hundreds of miles downwind, especially those with asthma or other health conditions. Hurricane Ida became a tropical depression this week, leaving hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana without electricity or water and causing flash flooding in Tennessee. People in New Orleans have been hit with intense heat directly after the flooding. Since the U.S. Conservative Supreme Court just overturned the federal eviction moratorium, the storm could mean that more renters are forced from their homes. Adam Mahoney writes for Grist, quote, While natural disasters may uproot families and their homes, landlords have used hurricanes, floods, and other wild, wild weather events as an opportunity to kick renters out. After Hurricane Katrina, Thousands of low-income renters in Louisiana and Mississippi faced mass evictions and illegal price gouging. 
In New Orleans, homelessness rates soared in the following years as people flocked to the city and helped drive average rental prices up 82%. The Supreme Court for the state of Minnesota has rejected an appeal by opponents of the Enbridge Pipeline Line 3 that was trying to get the court to revoke the company's permit on environmental grounds. The Associated Press quotes Winona LaDuke as saying, quote, The rights of a Canadian corporation continue to prevail over the laws of nature and the human rights of Anishinaabe people. That a court would rule there is no environmental impact when the rivers have been sucked dry and scientists are declaring a code red for the planet is deeply disturbing. A crime is being committed in front of us all. And now Enbridge is set to make profit off the destruction of our north. The Intercept, meanwhile, has obtained documents showing that Minnesota police have been working very closely with Enbridge by sharing information and holding joint meetings and training sessions as they take on the water protectors who are standing in opposition. And now for some reports and studies. The highest point on the Greenland ice cap experienced rain for the first time on human record uh, last week or the week before. A new study has found that at least 30% of the world's wild tree species are at risk of extinction. That's mostly from agricultural uh, activity. A new study has found that fracking can cause widespread pollution in surface water. The United Nations is reporting that four years without rain have left Madagascar on the cusp of the world's first climate-induced famine. UNICEF is reporting that 1 billion children, which is nearly half of all the children on Earth, are facing extreme risk from the climate crisis. And new studies published in the Lancet Journal have found that deaths from extreme heat have risen over 74% since 1980, and deaths from extreme cold have risen 31% since 1990. Extinction Rebellion has been clogging the streets of London for the past couple weeks and occupying corporate offices and shutting down oil infrastructure with the goal of forcing the UK government to appoint citizens' assemblies to democratically decide how to lower emissions as quickly and dramatically as possible. Their members have been speaking with the press, with Gail Bradbrook fielding questions from a talk radio dude, about how Extinction Rebellion is absurd because Gail Bradbrook drives her son to soccer practice, and Claire Farrell arguing with a man on the BBC who wants to decarbonize slowly to make sure there is a quote-unquote economic dividend for people, with Farrell responding that we are way past the point of slow and easy decarbonization. And finally, indigenous communities in Brazil recently organized the largest indigenous protest in the country's history to combat what they see as a program of extermination on the part of the government, agribusiness, logging, and mining companies. And this comes as Oil Change International and the Indigenous Environmental Network have released a report finding that indigenous resistance in Canada and the U.S., has, over the past decade, stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least one quarter of annual U.S. and Canadian emissions. That story about New Orleans low-income renters being forced out by a hurricane and then coming back to 
increased rental prices is one of the seemingly never-ending examples of the ways in which the climate crisis is inter- intertwined with with both the housing crisis and you know the wealth inequality and and honestly it is I think if I was going to critique my own point from earlier about a carbon budget that is where it falls short right the fact that we are experiencing all of these types of horrific types of disaster capitalism and that you could imagine a world that tackles climate change that doesn't solve these problems and so there has to be something else that attached to it and so but maybe that's what you do you start thinking about it further but first uh, let me just take a second to acknowledge just how incredible that last story you mentioned was um in regards to how successful indigenous nations have been to keeping fossil fuel in the ground. As I mentioned in my opening comment, Canada is on pace to blow past its carbon budget within four to five years. And some quick back of napkin calculation leaves me to understand that emissions, that the emissions that oil change international and indigenous environmental network uh, have stopped or, or, or found that indigenous nations have stopped or delayed is equivalent to approximately half of that entire budget left for our country. So that's two extra years of time to act that our colonial states have actively fought with indigenous water and land protectors to throw away and burn. And still, to this day, while Biden and Trudeau tout their climate agendas, these attacks continue in Minnesota at the site of Line 3, in British Columbia to the tiny house warriors who are standing up against TMX, and across Turtle Island in countless smaller and bigger ways. All in the name of fossil fuel expansion, something that the International Energy Agency has declared must end. And then across the pond in Britain, XR leads two weeks of protests against every protests against what every country attached to the IPCC has declared as a code red. And they are met with unbelievably petty questioning by the media about what kind of car they drive, or if they are worried that people might be mad at them for being late to work. The cognitive dissidence is astounding. We are in a world of perpetual record-breaking fires and storms, and it seems like everywhere we look we're being told simultaneously it's the end of the world and it's no big deal at all, often by the very same people. And I'm honestly not sure if I have a point here beyond, if you see this too, know that you're not alone. The world is not okay. We are not okay. But there is hope in action, and so act we must. We're perfectly okay, Stefan. We're lovely. I'm lovely. You're lovely. Everyone listening to this is lovely. I will not have you naysay my loveliness. All right. Well, the um, music break we'll go to, I'm sure, will be lovely as well. And then we'll be back with Emma McIntosh talking about the Canadian Association for Petroleum Producers, known as CAP, and their demands for this election. We are back with our interview this week with Emma McIntosh from the National Observer talking once again about CAP. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me. Truly a a full circle moment for us. 
Yeah. Before the show, we were talking that maybe the first time you came on was to talk about Cap, who are, I think most listeners to the show probably are aware, but maybe you can give us a bit of a broader explanation of who they are and what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So CAP is the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. They're basically a very well-resourced lobby group representing a whole bunch of really big oil and gas companies in Canada. By their own telling, they represent companies that produce about 80% of the fossil fuels that Canada produces. So that's a lot. The other thing to know about them is that a lot of the companies that are their members are actually foreign-owned. So that's relevant context to some of the asks that they're making. But the other really important thing to understand about CAP is that they're very influential. They're very powerful. They have a seat at the table. They're able to engage in very expensive, very enormous lobbying efforts and advertising efforts. And in recent years, they've gotten very involved with elections on the provincial and federal level in tandem with the rise of climate action. So that's the backdrop. Yeah. I want to dive into that for a second because when I mentioned this interview to co-host Dave, he, his question was, is this normal? Because like we think a lot of you know, NGOs sometimes releasing versions of platforms or at least parts of things you want to see in platforms. I don't know how common it is or for industry groups to do the same. You can imagine why they would, but yeah, has CAP been doing this for a long time? Is this a normal thing to do? I think, yeah, CAP has done this before. We wrote about it in 2019 when they did this. And I think industry groups, like it's not totally uncommon for them to to put out a list of asks. Framing it this way, though, is an interesting rabbit hole that we can dive down because it's all framed as this like vote for energy. Like we're not voting for a candidate. We're voting for energy. And it's done through this whole other arm of cap called energy citizens. Do we want to get into the energy citizens thing right now? Let's dive in. <laughs> I love diving in. Okay. So energy citizens, it's basically a Canadian version of an American concept. In the US, there's like a, a cap counterpart called the American Petroleum Institute. And what they did was they created the first energy citizens. And the idea with that is they would mobilize all of their member companies and their staff and their contractors and create this kind of astroturf group that ostensibly is like a grassroots, look at all these energy workers advocating for what's best for them. And when in reality, it, it's being coordinated by the lobby group. And through this process, the American Petroleum Institute actually had a lot of success. In 2015, they gave a presentation in Calgary to CAP people about how well this was working. And they talked about impacting like over 200 members of Congress, about like 30 state governors in the U.S. And so they were like, hey, you guys should really try this. And CAP was like, yes, we will. And so Energy Citizens exists. I think at this point, the, the pretense that it's like a, a grassroots thing is gone. It's just CAP speaking at this point given a level of awareness about it. But now every time there's an election, CAP starts this like vote energy effort through energy citizens. And that's really the point is they are telling lawmakers what they want, but they know that already. Like lawmakers are already on the other end of a very intense lobbying effort. So they know what's going on, but what they want is they want their supporters, these energy workers and their families and their friends to 
know what to look for in platforms. And so that's that's the point here. Sometimes this is accompanied by like a data collection effort. Last time around, my former colleague Fatima Sayed and I wrote about how CAP had been sending out this very weirdly detailed survey, wanted to know about like your favorite car and like your music taste. So that it could likely use that data to micro-target better for its advertising. This time around, we don't see that, but we do see an email signup list really similar to what campaigns would use. So it, it's an interesting political machine. Yeah, it makes sense that the lawmakers themselves wouldn't actually need to be told because as you said, they're they hear from CAP a lot, as we've covered previously on the show, how often they're sort of talking. And so what do they want these these pol- policies and positions to be? Again, if they're not pushing for political parties specifically, but rather positions, what are the positions that CAP thinks these governments should should hold? That's a really fun part of the story, I think, because <laughs> the, the positions. So there's three pillars to CAP's platform this time around. The first one is based on the concept of economic recovery from COVID-19. The idea there is CAP is arguing that the energy industry is really well positioned to help drive that recovery. All they need is a little bit of help. So they talk about government support for more, more oil and gas exploration in Atlantic Canada. They talk about, like in terms of long-term stuff, just more support for the energy industry They talk about IEA projections, and I'm sure (laughs) frequent listeners of the Green Majority have heard all about those. There's a bit of cherry picking going on. They they talk about how the IEA has projected that there will be oil and gas needs for a couple decades at least, and that Canada is well positioned to fulfill those. But they don't really mention some of those other projections that recommend that no new oil and gas infrastructure be built. That's part of the, <laughs> the overall picture. And then there's some familiar stuff in there too. Last election, a big argument from both the Conservatives and from CAP. And I think even Jeremy Singh might have brought this up at some point, was that natural gas from Canada could be used to displace coal, which is more emissions intensive, to regions that still use it, like in Asia. So it's like replacing one super bad thing with a less bad thing and that that could maybe give us some credit like emissions credits we could use to cover the fact that we're still extracting the stuff so that's the first one the second one is about clean tech and like environmental stuff and that's where cap is saying like hey our members really want to meet the environmental standards that everyone seems to want folks might remember that the 2019 election ended up being like the climate election and the majority of voters really went for parties that had a credible climate plan. And so this section actually represents a huge tonal shift for CAP, where they're really putting in like a lot of focus, saying that we really want to have strong environmental standards, but we would like the government's help to get those technologies rolling. They talk a lot specifically about carbon capture. And the the easiest rationale for that is just that carbon capture would theoretically allow companies to keep extracting and offset the extraction by like with this other process. The way that from talking to industry folks, the way that I understand it is that they believe that that's just going to be a big part of the puzzle, that they really, truly want to lower their emissions. And they think that would be a great way to do it. Environmentalists tend to not agree with that approach. They tend to feel like enabling more fossil fuel extraction for the indefinite future is not a good idea. So up to you, (laughs) dear listeners, to decide where you fall on that one. And 
it's interesting because the way that they talk about the Paris Agreement here is different and still hits the same point. The 2019 cap argued that Canada needed to acknowledge that oil and gas was the only way it could meet its Paris targets. Now, they're like, we, using these global offset credits, can still meet our Paris Agreement targets. We just have to do it this way. But there's no argument that's the only way anymore. So that's interesting. The third one is the one that I, I, I struggle with. And I think perhaps many of us would struggle with. And it's titled Reconciliation. In it, CAP argues that a great way to advance reconciliation with Indigenous communities is through economic reconciliation from resource development. So they do note in a little sidebar that there are a variety of views and perspectives in Indigenous communities about resource extraction and that some of them like the idea of resource development. But it doesn't mention that many of them don't. Uh, Many of them have you know, advocated against pipelines and think of like the Wet'suwet'en blockades. It's, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument. And th- their idea there is that they, they say that by giving communities self-determined ways to participate in the economy, that that can set them on a desirable path. And they also argue that like the industry already purpor- like proportionally hires a lot of Indigenous workers. So this is something that should be taken into account. And that's an interesting one too, because CAP, like, their record on this stuff isn't so simple. In the early days of COVID, they were lobbying the government to delay implementation of UNDRIP, which is the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's a document that that outlines a bunch of fundamental human rights that need to be given to uh, Indigenous peoples. And one of them is the right to say no to resource development in their territories. I asked Cap how those things square. They did not answer. So if I hear anything, I'll report back. How committed can you really be to these things? It feels like the ethos here across multiple of these platforms is we agree in the good thing that you want, but we want it to be slower and he wants you to give us money to do it. It feels like the whole thing. Like we want, yeah, we want to do climate tackling things. However, we want it to be done in a way where we can keep doing exactly what we're doing and also give us money so that it can be reducing emissions. And then we want to be a part of the reconciliation effort, but we want to delay the the actual emissions of UNDRIP. Like it does feel like they're just asking for a lot of money. Yeah, that's definitely an interpretation that you can <laughs> In the last platform, there was actually an interesting item that caught my eye at the time, like 2019, a million years ago. And it said they wanted the new government to acknowledge that oil and gas is not subsidized, which is a dubious claim. And this time around, there's there's none of that. They're just asking for money straight up. They're just asking for support and for money. And I, I just to represent the industry's perspective on this, I think it's important to understand there have been like multiple years at this point of really difficult times in the oil patch. Those companies don't seem to feel that they have the capital to do this stuff on their own and that they feel if the government wants them to lower their emissions, great, but help us out here. And they think that this is just the practical way to make it happen. The way that one person put it to me is that a lot of the folks working in oil and gas are engineers. They actually really like solving problems. So the world has given them a problem. That problem is to lower your emissions. And this is the way that they're trying to figure out how to do it. 
fact of it and how you will. There is, <laughs> there's a lot going on. And this is Cap's perspective on how to muddle through it. It's just, it's just a question of how well that aligns with platforms and like the party platforms and how well that aligns with whoever wins. Speaking to like folks from the NGO environmental groups, they said if these things were implemented, it would be disastrous for our emissions. The oil patch doesn't feel that way, but I will note that some of the stuff does seem to align with like stuff in the conservative platform, particularly the stuff around like carbon capture. That's a big focus in the CPC platform as well. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that they would note the IEA given, as we've discussed in the show earlier, the latest report from the National Energy Agency basically said that there should be no new fossil fuel infrastructure at all. Like it'd be, I guess it'd be different for me if CAP came up and was like, look, we know that we have to transition or move towards net zero. Like a bunch of the oil companies that are part of CAP, I'm sure have these net zero pledges that somehow these oil companies have all created. Like most major oil companies now have some sort of net zero pledge, which no one really has any idea of how they're going to get there, but they have them. And so if they had come out and been like, look, we understand that we're a sunsetting industry, but here are the ways that we could be greener now. And we won't pursue any more fossil fuel expansion within this area. Oh, there's a different conversation to be had, but we are running a bit out of time. And so maybe I'll pivot to my last question, which is really specifically focused on the election more generally. But this is what CAP's having to say, your job and your reporting focuses on more broadly the election, you're deep in it right now. And we have now 17 days to the election. And I'm curious, what are you paying attention to and what are you focused on in regards to what's next? What could happen? What should we be doing? That's a fun question. For me, so the day that we're speaking, Wednesday, the 1st of September, is the day that the Liberals are dropping their complete platform. So that's that'll be something I have my eye on a lot because I think one of my favorite interesting narratives this time around is the, the way that the shine has come off of the Liberal climate promises, the way that it was in 2015. I think there was like a huge amount of enthusiasm from people my age because we were like... 1920 at the time. Huge amount of enthusiasm for all these climate promises and a whole bunch of other things as well. But now it's just kind of hard to see where that stuff was delivered. Even like the boil water advisories, which were a big thing, haven't really seen the delivery on that. And so without that youth enthusiasm, with some of that moving over to the NDP, I think that that's a really dynamic part of this campaign, especially given all this like speculation now with the polling and the horse race over whether the conservatives might be pulling ahead of the liberals. That annoying thing happens in Canada where people decide to vote strategically and everything goes bonkers. So that's one little chaotic strain I'm keeping my eye on. But I'm also like with the liberal platform, one thing I'll be listening to the Green Majority to break down is whether the Liberals unveil something that is enough to galvanize people. One thing that I think the U.S. election kind of hinted at for me was that coming out of a crisis, people want reasons to feel optimistic and people want a vision. And yeah, I'm interested to see if the Trudeau Liberals can deliver that. I think it's been interesting to watch the Conservatives step into the climate policy arena and make a make a serious attempt there. I'm really interested as well to see if that attempt is enough for 
voters in the Toronto suburbs. I don't think it's enough for climate scientists and anyone who's tracking how well it would lower emissions. I, I don't think that it, it seems to be very effective on that front, but I know that there are a, a lot of people in like the, the greater Toronto area who would love to vote conservative if, if they could see evidence of effort on that front. And I'm interested to see how many people that ends up being. It feels really fluid. This one feels like there's a lot up in the air. Oh, and the debates, how could I forget? We're going to have to watch everyone argue over this. It's going to be great. Oh, man. I'm going to say the debates, I think, are maybe the one thing that makes me the most cynical about Canadian politics. Like as far as everything else, there are a lot of other reasons to be cynical and reasons not to be cynical. But every single I have not actually witnessed a debate that has not left me feeling just depressed. And I think it's mostly just, it's mostly just the lack of mute buttons. It's mostly just the crosstalk that is, ends up being the thing. But it, oof, they're rough for me. Oh. I don't know. I will admit. We have no Bernier this time around. So there might be a little less crosstalk. But I do remember like last time, the debate just sucked. Like, I, I just remember everyone the observer sitting around going, oh, this sucks. I think we, we timed the amount, the amount of time that they spent talking about climate and environment. It was like minuscule. And honestly, like a lot of the time, it doesn't feel like the debate really changes anything. It can, but last time it didn't. This time, things are so tight that the part of me that seeks chaos is maybe this one will. <laughs> maybe this is the moment for debates. Maybe now. Maybe something real will come out of this. Um, yeah. Yeah, that would be lovely. I, I would be. I would, I, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> to come in there and argue their side, that would be interesting. Yeah, there should be an NGO debate where you just have four, like you have, like you have a house. Like, although I guess so often be like one would be housing specific and one would be something else. Maybe that wouldn't actually function in the way I would want it to because to be so separate. <laughs> you could have like Greenpeace up there with Cap, and then someone more middle ground, like the like a clean energy think tank, and they could all just duke it out. Yeah, I do think there's ways to do this that would provide better information. I've become increasingly convinced by the argument that debates are a patriarchal Western creation that actually do not convey information effectively. And it would be better if there was just like a televised 20 minute speech from each leader that was just, here's what we're going to do. And then that would be the whole thing. But there is the showmanship of it and getting able to pay attention to them does require a bit of a show. And so this who might win thing is appealing. That's a really interesting argument, actually. I don't know. I feel like a speech, like a 20-minute speech would just be, unless they, they fact-checked it live, that could be weird. Yeah, yeah. There'd have to be something else going on there. It's just the, but or maybe it's that each leader has their own fact-checker, which isn't the rest of the people on the stage, there's like a separate person whose job it is to fact check them. And so they don't have to be like, that's not true across the thing. I would love to hear just like, an <laughs> like if they, if there's like an untruth, you know, I'd just yeah. love to have the fact checkers have like a dinger or like an air horn where they could be like, wah, 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 wah. also when you said that there's gotta be more going on there, it just made me think of the show Double Dare, where I'm like, oh, maybe like the leaders can get their speeches while going down a slide and getting pied in the face. That is already <laughs> a better idea. <laughs> Think about that one for the next election. Yeah, exactly. We now have much to think about. Thank you so much, Emma, for always coming on uh, and letting us pick your brain about all things climate and elections. Uh, appreciate it and have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me.